This is chapter 129 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. It's a genre marketed toward teens, but 55% of its readers are adults. We're talking about YA books. Coming up, three titles that tackle some very grown-up subjects. A diverse cast of six women, three successful adults and three young agents, team up to save the world from injustices in the Athena Protocol. It's the YA debut from novelist, screenwriter, and director Shamin Sharif. She tells us the high-octane thriller about a top-secret organization was actually inspired by a tech conference. I was sitting in the audience looking at these amazing social entrepreneurs and people who were had made you know a lot of money in tech, and then they were trying to change the world and cure hunger and climate change. And I suddenly thought, well, what if you had three women who had enough of the charity lunches and decided to deal with something like human trafficking, which is, you know, these kinds of causes have always been close to my heart, you know, issues dealing with women, children. And um, and they're things that governments just don't have the time or the bandwidth to deal with. So what if they just crossed the line and started this rogue agency and ran this team of female agents? I just thought it would be interesting because now you're crossing all sorts of moral boundaries. And um, and whenever there's that kind of internal conflict, it's always a good start, I think, for a thriller or for any story. So, so tell me why then you decided to write this as a YA novel as opposed to an adult thriller. Sure. I, you know, when I was writing it, I didn't think about a particular genre. I just I just always try to write the story that comes naturally to me for that for that moment. Um, but I think with the Athena Protocol, there, there are three women who've, who've had their successes in life and they run this agency, and then there are three younger agents. And I love the idea of telling the story from the perspective of the youngest agent because she's the most immature, a little bit off the rails, a little bit arrogant, very talented, um, but she has the most to learn. So for me, even though I was writing a thriller, I really wanted it to be very character-driven. So the character of Jessie, who sort of goes from the beginning from being this arrogant hothead to, to learning how to be a bit more of a team player by the end, was crucial. So I think because it's through her voice and she's pretty young that it kind of skewed to the YA market. But I always saw it as a story for everybody. Your books often feature a diverse cast of, of strong female characters. Yeah. Why is that important to you? I think it's diversity, women, um, diverse sexuality, women of color. That's Those have always been the protagonists in my books, my films. And I think the reason is because that's the life I lead. Those are the stories that I felt growing up were underserved. I never saw those role models on TV or the movies 20, 30 years ago. So it was always very important to me to do that. And it's always it's been not an easy path to choose, especially making movies in, in the Hollywood industry. We, you know, it's not always been the most financeable, but for me, it's always been something that I thought was core to what I wanted to to tell those stories. And I think uh, diversity is very important, and inclusion is very important. And I know you said you didn't set out to write this as a YA book, but it almost makes sense that you would have these kinds of characters yeah. in a YA novel because a lot of kids are. You know, that's a time when they're not sure who they are, what they want to be, where they're going, yeah. and it. It shows them that there are role models out there. Absolutely. Look, after our, our, my first two books and films, I Can't Think Straight in the World Unseen, I had such an outpouring, especially from young women all over the world, who said, you know, thank you for representing us. And this made me feel that I was inspired to, to follow my own journey or to, 
you know, uh, be with a person that I wanted to be with, whatever it might be. And so for me, with the Athena Protocol, I think there's another opportunity to do that. And, and not in a in a knowing way, it's just in a natural way. I mean, this is the life I live, and I think it's important for young women of color, uh, young people of diverse sexuality, to see themselves represented in a novel that's not necessarily about that topic. The Athena Protocol is not about racism. It's not about being an LGBTQ woman. It's just that these characters happen to be that way, but they're you know out there fighting human trafficking. So I think it's important to have that representation because even by omitting it, you suggest that there's something unworthy or not important about these these people and these characters, and they are so worthy and so important. So I couldn't help but thinking while I was reading your book, the one face that kept popping into my mind was Jeffrey Epstein because. <laughs> Because of everything that's been going on in the world, and then your yeah. book deals with human trafficking. Like yeah. he was the face I saw at yeah. just how awful this this can really be, and how it impacts so many people and so many young women. Yeah, I mean, you know, the timing of that story and and the publication of this book was was interesting, but it's it's a it's a sad state of affairs with human trafficking. I think it's people don't realize they tend to think of it as a problem in Eastern Europe, as in the book, or in. Africa or in Asia. But, you know, there are um, hundreds of thousands of people trafficked through the US and Canada, through Western Europe every single year. So it's a global problem that's that's everywhere. So I think it is important for us to realize that um, the face of it can vary. The face of it is always there. And it's up to us to, to just try to make small steps to make a difference, whether that's buying our our food and clothes fair trade wherever we can so that they're not being made by victims of slavery and trafficking or just keeping a vigilant eye on airports and bus stations and places where we there may be people that need help. Another theme of this book that I love is this idea of leaving the world better than we found it. Mm-hmm. And there's this one particular passage. Um, it's on page 256. I typed it here so I don't have to go searching for it in the book. Most of the time, it doesn't feel like all those little things, the small sacrifices even make a difference. But what if they do? If enough people made the effort, maybe we need thousands of smaller heroes every day instead of just the occasional big one. Do you personally believe that? I do. And (laughs) I do. And I think some of that has come from being humbled by how much people told me that their lives had changed from some of the books and movies that I was privileged to write. I've always known the power of stories because I felt it growing up. You know, you just feel that primal need to, for stories to kind of help you through your your lives and make sense of our lives. But when people told me, you know, they had literally um, set up an LGBTQ support group for the Untouchables cast in India, or they had uh, felt empowered to get out of an arranged marriage and be with the person that they wanted to be with, that's that's incredible stuff. That's you're thinking, wow, people are actually making concrete steps. So yeah. And that's just me making up stuff about people that don't exist. So, you know, I think people making a difference every day, just in volunteering a little bit or donating um, or just talking about these issues, climate change, the protests in Hong Kong, all of this raising of our voices, I think, is so, so important. And I think people feel overwhelmed when it comes to something like human trafficking. But honestly, I do think those small choices make a difference. And it's even just having this discussion that we're having about it and putting it out there in the world. Totally. You know, and people people reading the book and saying actually I never I never knew that and it's it's kind of a fun a, fun is maybe the wrong word but it's a, it's a more digestible way to talk about a topic like this where it's not preaching about it it's just something that these young women are trying to get a handle on and they're making mistakes and they're you know fighting with each other and then getting on with each other and trying to to figure out a way through the kind of traumatic work that they do. 
I know that you're a novelist as well as a screenwriter. You've turned yeah. your books into movies, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Is this one headed for the big screen as well? I think the Athena Protocol is headed for, for a screen. It may well be the big screen or it may be now. I think it's it's such a golden age of television that we're looking at um, you know, a couple of, of really interesting companies are, are, have come to us to, to look at it for TV as well. So I think with six characters, six strong women like this, um, with their own personal issues, as well as the amazing missions that they run, I think it could make a really exciting ongoing franchise of TV or film. So that leads me to my next question. Mm. The book is primed for a sequel. Are yes. there more uh, Athena Protocol adventures coming? There is. There's one sitting on my desk right now that, I, <laughs> <That's great. laughs> that I'm finishing up editing. So uh, the, the sequel to the Athena Protocol is called The Shadow Mission. And it's going to be out next October, 2020. So you can book me in now. Um, and it's about it follows the same characters. So Jesse, Hala, and Caitlin uh, go off. This time, the the focus is on India, and on a you know series of schools which help rescue young women from early marriage and give them a chance to get educated and get independent. But uh, but those schools fall under attack. So that's going to be their next mission. That sounds incredible. <laughs> And also another learning experience for readers. Yes, I hope so. Well, and me, actually. So it's always well, interesting. We've been talking with Shamin Sharif. The book is The Athena Protocol. Thank you for coming in and talking to us. It's been such a pleasure, Lisa. Thank you. Frankly in Love, the debut from author David Yoon, is much more than a novel about first love. His story about Frank Lee, a Korean-American high school student caught between his traditional parents and his American upbringing, touches on racism, white privilege, and what exactly it means to be an American. We chatted about his book, which at least one publication has called the biggest YA debut of the year. What led you to write this all-encompassing kind of story? It basically all started when I had my daughter, and she's seven now, but I don't know about you or if you have kids, but you know, when I had her, I just started thinking about all this. My, my whole childhood basically came flooding back. Because you see the world through through their eyes, you know, a, ch- a child's eyes, and and I just kept going, and I started thinking about like um, middle school and high school, and you know, my parents are pretty traditional too. Um, they they uh, wanted me to date only Korean girls, basically, and so so I had to. As a result, I had to hide my entire love life in high school, meaning you know, both girls. Uh, <laughs> From my parents. And I'm like, looking back, I was like, this is such a weird thing to to hide something so important from people, you know, who are so important in your life. And it all boiled down to notions about ethnicity and and racism and, yeah, politics, too. I mean, my my love life has always been steeped in those issues. Um, My love life has always been sort of dictated by politics beyond my control. And so I really couldn't write about love in any other way. It's just because that, that's how I grew up. You know, you really got me thinking about what it means to be an American. And even though I'm a first generation American, I don't get that hyphen American label like someone who's Korean uh-huh. or black or Asian might just because I'm white. And it's never really something I've thought about until I was reading it in your book. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I just was um, doing some reading on whiteness because I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole concept of whiteness. And I was listening to that fantastic podcast. That Duke University scene on radio, and season two of it is called Seeing White. And it's all about how whiteness was constructed and and how, you know, back in the day, it was just Anglos. 
and and then slowly over time to sort of build a constituency they folded in an Irish who used to be looked really down upon um, Italians who were absolutely outcasts Germans and Eastern Europeans and so on and, and so I I just I really wanted to explore this idea of what 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 actually is whiteness because it used to be very specific and um and it has sort of become this defining mythology of of America of modern America um to the point where it's it's invisible you know so um i i talked to i just as an experiment i i talked to my very good friend who's you know who's quote white and i was like you know your last name is is dodge so Technically, I really should call you. What is Dodge? That's that's um, British. So I should call you like a fifth generation British American. And we were cracking up about that because you know that that sort of ethnic history has been largely erased by this term white. And you know he he actually got a little bit sad because he's like you know I I wish I had an ethnic background to explore and and discover, but it keeps sort of being denied to me because now I just feel like. I sort of don't belong anywhere, you know. I don't belong to. A, I don't have an origin story. And I thought that was interesting too. And that's what Frank really experiences in this book, and he calls himself a limbo, somebody who's caught between his really traditionalist parents and this modern American society. And he is. I mean, he's. I'm glad you brought up the hyphen because he really is the hyphen. He's not really Korean enough, and he's not really American enough. He is actually the hyphen in between the words Korean and American. Um, and I think a lot of kids growing up in America, since, you know, at one point or another, we were all immigrants at some point. You know, we were Irish hyphen American and we were Turkish hyphen American. And some people learn to define what that hyphen was. And some people are just learning to define what that hyphen is, depending on how recently they arrived. You know, that that was sort of Frank's struggle to figure out how to let go of wanting to be Korean enough because it's impossible. He's, he's just not from there and he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily belong there. And how to let go of, of struggling to be mainstream white American enough and learning to very confidently and almost proudly uh, define his own space uh, and, and kind of figure out like, what, what name do I give that, that hyphen eventually? And for a lot of kids growing up here, I'm, I'm really excited to see what they decide to call themselves as, as they grow older and have, have kids of their own and become um, parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. I love that the one label that the, the teenagers in your book don't struggle with are being nerds. Because I think in a lot of other books, <laughs> nerds are that group of kids, you know, they're ostracized because of the things that they like. But Frank and his friends really embrace it wholeheartedly. Nerd is kind of funny. I, it, it, it all like nerd and geek. Those terms, they really used to be insults. And when I was a kid, they were they're a total insult. But then something kind of happened. I think like the tech revolution really changed all that. Um, as everyone sort of, I don't know, forced, but like we all just sort of became more savvy in a field, uh, i.e., computers that used to be only dominated by super mega nerds. Um, and now everyone was kind of in on it. So we all started calling ourselves nerds. And then we started applying the term nerd to just sort of anything that anyone is into in general, you know, to, to a level of, of geekery. Wow. That's a circular definition. <laughs> 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 you 
you know, someone who's like really into the, the get, gets in the weeds about loves something so much that they go right to the weeds. Um, that has become the term nerd. And I just love it. I just love that it, it indicates that someone is like just super passionate about something and they don't care like what it makes them look like. They don't care what the, the stigma or what social context is. They don't care about looking too smart or looking too intense or esoteric. They just love what they love and they're going to pursue it. And um, I really wanted to, to show a bunch of characters who, who love thinking about things and love examining the world in this really passionate, um, aware way. Um, and really nerds kind of do that. <laughs> they obsess over every little detail and they're constantly asking, well, why is it this way? You know, why isn't it this way? And I just love that mindset. So. You said in an earlier interview that you were scared about your mom reading the book because of how much it's based on your real life. Has she read it yet? Uh, no, she hasn't read it yet. And to be honest, she's not like a huge reader. But I mean, most of my trepidation comes from this this difference of of opinion. I mean, I, don't, I really don't think my mom considers herself racist. And in a way, she isn't in like the traditional Korean mindset. And this takes some explaining because it's such a weird idea for, for Americans to grasp. Because in America, we, we honestly 100% believe that you can be from anywhere on the planet and you can just be American. And we've proven it. I mean, we have lots of different people from all over. And we don't really, we don't really care all that much. We just say, okay, now you're American. You're one of us. And I, I love that about this country. We're not always like super good at it. <laughs> you know, we could use true. some work. Yeah, but, but it's our ideal and we consistently come back to it as a national ideal, like a, a part of our core identity. In, in Korea, on the other hand, and actually in like almost every other country out there, uh, the, the people are, are ethnically defined. So, you know, whether you're in Italy or Japan or China or wherever, they're ethnically defined. You are, you either are Korean or you're not. And it's, I, 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 like, I lived in Japan for like four years and it is literally legally impossible for like, let's say, um, a dark skinned person from Morocco to become Japanese. It's literally impossible. They are, it's, it's like bloodlines and ethnic um, characteristics that define their nationality first before any sort of personality traits or, or ways of thinking. And that, that's just a norm outside of, the, outside of this country. And, and that's why there's, it's a struggle. And I had to really dig deep as an author to try to see America from my parents' point of view. So when I see my parents and Frank, when Frank sees his parents and they're being, quote, racist, He's applying an American worldview to a group of people who come from an ethnically largely homogenous and ethnically defined country. And so that's his point of view being imposed on them. And if you flip it around, it's really hard to do. But if you turn it around and think about America from Frank's parents' point of view, they are coming from a place of that has a strong sense of ethnic belonging and they're coming into this country where everyone's sort of everywhere and from everywhere and doing their own thing and very independent. And that's very disorienting and it's very difficult. So naturally, they're going to cling to people who look like them, um, who speak the same language and so on. And I don't want to judge it. You know, I don't want to say like, this is good, this is bad. It just sort of is what it is. 
And to be aware of that, of Frank's parents' mindset, I found hugely valuable. The book has gotten a lot of attention. What's that been like for you? Super surreal. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's been like, honestly, it's been a total dream country. We writers, um, we stay at home and we sit in our little chairs and we're alone most of the time. And I don't know about you, but like a lot of writers I've met, we really just like to be alone and with our words and we're our own worst critic. And on good days, we're our biggest fans, but we're alone. And when you're suddenly you're out in the world and all these people are looking at you, it's it's uh, kind of intense, you know? I fortunately have had the good luck of seeing my wife go through all this because she's awesome. She's amazing. And she used to be terrified of public speaking and crowds. And, and now she's gotten excellent at it. She's like a super, like superstar. She's a pro. And so I was really inspired by her. And I was like, well, if she can do it, then, then I can take cues from her and learn how to do it myself. And it's been really, really fun connecting with fans. And my favorite part is, is going to events with people who love books. Um, it's super rare to, to go to a room full of, you know, like 50 to 100 people, all of whom love books as much as I do and love talking about philosophy and life and important things that matter. And that's been like such an honor and a pleasure. It's that's that's my favorite part for sure. I can totally see how the how this book in particular can can start up a lot of conversations in a room full of people who love books and those kinds of ideas. <laughs> yeah, it's been really, really fun. And, you know, I, my my other favorite part is, is, you know, it's not just like I'm getting a lot of um, uh, making a lot of good connections and having good conversations, not only with Asian Americans, but also with, you know, Greek Americans and Italian Americans, all of whom have said, like, those could be my parents just speaking <laughs> Korean. It's so true, you know. And I, I love that, that there, there's always this this divide whenever you interface cultures in in a long-term profound meaningful way like you move your whole family here it's a crazy thing to do and i think that that is sort of the american story and i just i can't get enough of it now i know also that the book has been optioned are you going to make a cameo appearance like you do in your own book (laughs) oh man i would hope so (laughs) um that would be awesome i mean for nikki's movies uh we had a cameo on the beach, so that was fun for like that drone shot in Hawaii. And then um, in Sun is also a star. We had a cameo in the very beginning uh, montage, which was which was cool. Um, so yeah, that would be fun. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. <laughs> Thanks. We've been talking with David Yoon. The book is Frankly in Love. Thank you for spending some time and talking to us about this great book. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. In the speed of falling objects, a young woman who doesn't think too highly of herself literally crash lands in the Amazonian rainforest where she'll have to face everything that terrifies her if she wants to survive. And for the record, everything that scares her could fill an entire book. We get more from author Nancy Richardson Fisher. So the speed of falling objects is about a timid 17-year-old named Danger Danielle Warren. Everyone calls her Danny. And Danny lost an eye in a childhood accident, and she defines herself as defective based on that accident, her parents' divorce, her dad's abandonment, and some childhood bullying. So when her father, who's a famous TV survivalist named Cougar, invites Danny to film an episode in the Amazon rainforest, 
With teen movie idol Gus Price, she jumps at the chance to prove she's worthy of Cougar's love. But their plane crashes, and Danny has to face everything that terrifies her, including a dark secret about Cougar and the movie idol she's fallen for, um, and find her inner strength and unique skills to save herself and the people she loves and find the way home. I'm going to guess you've never had to survive in the Amazon on your own. What sort of research, ha- you, what sort of research did you have to do? I have never had to survive in the Amazon. I'm terrified of snakes, spiders. I don't even like mosquitoes. <laughs> so I did my research on my computer in my safe office and watched a, a ton of survival videos on how to build shelters and how to find water and how to build a raft, tie knots. I also talked to different um, people at local zoos about snakes and spiders and what would happen if you're bitten. And I am not embarrassed to say I have watched every episode of Naked and Afraid. I love that that's the the show within this whole survivalist genre that you watched in order to get some of the emotions, the feelings, and what they go through right. Yes, that show, I know that people laugh at it because people are naked, and that's the hook for the show. But Naked and Afraid is really interesting because it takes two people from different backgrounds with different abilities, puts them in horrible situations, and the interesting thing is seeing who has the ability to dig deep and who really has the ability to survive. And it's usually not the person you think it would be. And that's interesting, too, to hear you say that that's the show you watch, because to me, Cougar Warren seems like a mix between Steve Irwin and Bear uh, Grylls, which you didn't watch any of those shows before writing, right? No, I didn't because I wanted to create Cougar myself and not pull from any of those shows where those people are already very fully developed. So I wanted the chance to just create them from my own imagination. I'm sure there were a lot of situations you could have put Danny in, but why a plane crash in the Amazon? What inspired that huge part of this book? Well, at first I thought I'd put her in the mountains, but there's not a lot of challenges other than the obvious in the mountains. It's cold, there's snow, but in the Amazon, there's 3,600 species of spiders, 2.5 million insects, and 17 types of venomous snakes. So I thought if I'm going to challenge my character and her fears, that was the place to do it where I had so many different options to choose from. Now, they do some pretty cool things in the book, but this is not a survivalist guide. No, it's definitely not. I did a lot of research and tried to provide situations that were believable, but in no way should anyone read this novel and then go to the Amazon and try and survive. (laughs) What do you want readers, especially teens, to take away from what Danny goes through? The most important thing to me is the idea that we create who we are based on childhood experiences, whether those are great experiences or tragedies, lies, misperceptions, or labels that we attach to ourselves. And we carry those perceptions into adulthood unless we question them. And in The Speed of Falling Objects, I created a situation where a character sees herself as defective and inferior and an embarrassment, 
based on a lot of things she had no control of and based on lies and misperceptions. And she's given the opportunity to actually see that those things aren't true and then to redefine herself or define herself for the first time and become the narrator of her own life story and the hero of her own journey. And that's what I want readers to take away from it, to see who they think they are, to question whether that's true, and even if it is, to realize that they have the ability going forward to be whoever they want to become. And there's also this idea that it's okay if you're different. Yes, definitely. You, I think everyone feels different when they're young and tries to fit in, or a lot of people try to fit in. I know I did. And the idea that if you embrace the things that make you different, those are also the things that make you special. You know, it's funny having this conversation, too, because, you know, we're we're both past our teenage years. We both experienced, right. you know, time where we doubted ourselves, we're a little self-conscious, we were trying to fit in. And it's amazing how time can make you realize you don't have to worry about it. And here we are trying to tell the younger folks, hey, listen, don't do what we did. Don't listen. Do you think they'll listen? I hope so. I think the most wonderful thing about young adult books right now is that they delve into all of the things that I wish that I'd been able to read about when I was a teen. I, I think back in the books, I mostly read adult books, except for maybe Judy Bloom. Um, there wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of options. So I hope at least a few teens will, will listen and see themselves in Danny and make different choices. Tell me why you end each novel with a wish for readers. I think it's a wish for myself, too. I think that um, YA authors, a lot of us write stories that even help us now in our lives. We're delving into issues maybe we haven't fully unpacked or we're carrying baggage that we should have let go a long time ago. And so... That's really why I end with a wish, both for the readers to not do what I've done and for me to not continue doing what I do every day. And I know this is being marketed as a YA book, but I think adults will love it as well. And there is this whole group of adults who gravitate towards YA and only read that. Is, is there an age limit on these types of books or really can anyone pick up and read them and enjoy them? I don't think there's an age limit at all. And it, I, I read a statistic that said that 70-something percent of young adult readers are actually adult women. And that makes so much sense to me because either we want to revisit that moment in our lives when everything was fresh and new and exciting, or there are still issues in our lives that we haven't unpacked. And we go back and we read these stories and it gives us a new perspective. I like that idea. Definitely. It's, it's therapy through books. Exactly. For, <laughs> for both the author and the reader. Exactly. So we've been talking with Nancy Richardson Fisher. Her new book is The Speed of Falling Objects. Thank you for sa- taking some time today and talking to us. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we feature several books that give back just in time for Thanksgiving. Until then, keep tabs on us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.